Occupy a Job on Wall Street is an autobiographical novel about New York City in the aughts, centering around a protagonist who is mentored by three sociopaths. The author has more than 15 years of experience on Wall Street bracketing this same time period. While everything that follows is an accurate description of the world he witnessed, names and locations have been changed to protect people's identities. Season 2 Preview The Dinner Party There were 20 of us at the Gramercy. It was a momentary friendship forged in the bursting of the Nasdaq bubble, the September 11th attacks, a recession, and the contemporary frictions of the Iraq War. There was a fraternity between us now that seems hard to imagine in today's New York City, which recently strikes me more like a Euro Disneyland rather than the city I knew back then. This is the scene. Taking his place at the head of the table is an equity trader from Goldman North, who had come up with a pretty clever way of getting his non-Wall Street friends drunk. He'd arranged to have a dinner with a couple of his hedge fund peers. For simplicity, let's call them the Tudors and Diamondbacks of the world back then. He'd then figure out which brokers wanted to do more business with those funds and tell them to make a reservation at one of the hot new restaurants at the time. The brokers would be so grateful to be around these valued clients, there would be a rush at the end of dinner to put their credit cards down. The Goldman North guy was always coincidentally deep in conversation elsewhere when the bill arrived, and would disavow any knowledge of it being multiples of the amount the SEC legally mandated you could spend on your clients. Of the 20 of us there, six or so would just be random friends or girlfriends of his, but you never knew which ones, so they just drank for free. He himself had the memory and attention span of a goldfish, so who knew what his real agenda on the night was? Next to the Goldman North guy is a tall blonde girl he introduces to the table as Suka. I recall a slightly Eastern European-looking man opposite wincing as he said it, although she herself looked unperturbed. She worked at a company called Sandler O'Neill at the time, and despite that firm's near extinction during the 9-11 terror attacks decided to sue them on her way out the door to give a billionaire two male heirs and play tennis in the Hamptons. Imagine if Anne Boleyn had pulled that off. It would have changed world history. To the Goldman North guy's left is a tall woman with big hair and a perpetual smile on her face, matching the ever-present cocktail in her hand. He introduces her as Slapper, which means nothing to me until the British guy next to her gets all huffy about him calling her that, and then with a start, I realize I've met her before. Just a week ago, she had rollerbladed into pastis, drawing all the attention of the patrons in her lycra outfit, but never more than when she slipped over in front of all the clients she was trying to impress and knocked her front teeth out. Her shiny new teeth smiled happily at me from across the table. I introduced myself to the British man to divert him from getting in a fight with Goldman North over the name Slapper, which I gather must be analogous to the word suka in Russian. He tells me he used to work at Fidelity, but decided to resign and try his hand at a bank. So now he worked at Nomura. In a couple of months, I'll find out he was actually fired from Fidelity, and while he does indeed work at Nomura, it's as a security guard. To this day, I still marvel at his ability to have dodged the immediate disinterest of Wall Street in anyone who drops out of their white-collar ranks. My understanding is he pulled this trick off for the next 10 years before the bank compliance teams made brokers hand in detailed notes of the people attending their work dinners. God bless. I groan when I see who joins us next and sits next to the British fraud from Namora. It's a Dundee. 
Now, as I'll get into in a future podcast, Australians are a special class of people on Wall Street, equally as despised as they are oblivious to their role as outcasts. Dundee sits down and immediately posits to the banker sitting across from him that Italians aren't real white people. Before he can turn his attention to me, the waitress mercifully approaches. He engages her, and after finding out she's from Taiwan, expresses his appreciation for Thai food. The more I see of Australians, the more I appreciate my dog. Next to Dundee, instinctively avoiding him ever since she heard his accent, is a well-put-together woman in her late 50s we call The Rock. She's been on the Merrill trading desk since her 20s, and you won't find anyone to say a bad word about her over that whole time, so we'll move on to the next person. Beside The Rock is a tall guy who looks almost exactly like an even friendlier version of Will Ferrell. He works at Google, but will soon transition to a brokerage firm called Baycrest. Later, I catch up with him at the bar drinking whiskey shots, and I discover he's the sort of person who would give you the shirt off his own back. This is a moment I will remember vividly, long after he drinks himself to death in a New Orleans bar entertaining SAC clients sometime later. The Italian guy that Dundee insulted seems like a stand-up person, and I later find out that he is indeed a high-integrity person. But even that can't save him when the worst people on Wall Street want a piece of you. A decade from now, he will attend a charity for Harlem kids who don't have the necessary means for a necessary means for a higher education. One of his subordinates was overheard saying something totally unacceptable at this fundraiser. And when it got back to a bunch of snowflakes, that was it for his job too. The fundraiser itself was in honor of a famous hedge fund founder. And when several of their executives asked his brokerage firm to deliver them ahead, the firm came back with two. Collateral damage, Wall Street style. Next to the Italian guy, I recognize one of the biggest hedge fund guys on the street. At a dinner like this, it's unusual to be joined by any serious executives, but this guy actually runs a fund. He doesn't just pick through scraps like the rest of the pilot fish here. He's remarkably relaxed and talkative in his element amongst traders, which is great to see at the CEO level. His wife will join us later, and I remember her being nice as well, which is odd since she is widely believed to have later spiked his dinner with Ambien and they find him naked head down in a pool he never used to swim in. Someone takes a seat next to me and I ask her what she does on the street. She says she's in sales and her job is to make dumb guys like me feel smart. Before I can reply, there's a commotion at the head of the table, and I look over to see a well-dressed guest with a serving fork sticking out of his forearm. He's drinking a maestro out of a pint glass, but he hasn't spilled a drop of it and is laughing along with the person who stabbed him. <sighs> it's going to be a long night. Season 2, which includes stories from The Spotted Pig, details how Iceland blew up the world economy, and includes many more Australian jokes, will be released soon. Please subscribe to listen.